Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Tweaked Audio, they make uh, earbuds and headphones. Do you know what that is? You know what those are? You got that? Tweaked Audio, headphones, earbuds, need some? Get some? Tweaked Audio? Go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the promo code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, and get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Do you see how that works? Enter the promo code, get 33% off. That promo code, once again, is other people. Go to tweakedaudio.com. Get some earbuds. Get some headphones. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just Whoa. one person at just one time. All right. right. Here we right. go again. This is it. This is other people. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I have uh, Michelle T. As my guest today, Michelle T., author of the new novel, Black Wave, available now from Feminist Press. Very excited about this. She was just over here yesterday. She was kind enough to come over and sit down with me on Halloween, uh, which is you know no small feat, uh, considering Michelle is the parent of a young child. As the parent of young children, I can attest to this. Halloween, not an easy day to maneuver. There's a lot going on. It's sort of exhausting. I got into a situation where I felt... Uh, a little bit guilty for not dressing up. My daughter, you know, at the 11th hour, suddenly uh, realized that I wasn't going in costume because I don't like to wear costumes because I'm dead inside. Uh, she was like, you know, aren't you going to dress up? Like, why aren't you going to be Harry Potter? Because she went as uh, Hermione. And so then it became this thing where she wanted to uh, at least like draw something on my face. She wanted to give me a scar and I'm just like, you know what? I'm not going to let a six-year-old scribble on my face and then go out. It just, it's going to just be, I'm going to be self-conscious. I, I don't mean to sound super vain. It's not like that. But a six-year-old, like, yeah, just let a six-year-old scribble on your face then go out in public. And I know it's Halloween, but that just, it just felt annoying to me. And I was like, you know what? We're not going to scribble on dad's face. We're just going to go trick-or-treating. This is about you. You look great in your costume. Let's have some fun.
And, you know, for people who listen to this show uh, regularly or who, you know, who have listened uh, over any number of months or years, you know that I'm not a huge fan of holidays. It's a thing with me. I, uh, I think I like revolt against, uh, these days where I feel a sense of compulsory behavior or like, you know, some sort of compulsory, uh, emotional experience. Oh, it's Christmas. You're supposed to feel happier than any day of the year. Oh, it's Thanksgiving. You're supposed to feel super grateful. Oh, it's Easter. I don't know how you're supposed to feel on Easter. Oh, it's a uh, uh, Halloween. You're supposed to have a burning desire to paint your face. I can't do that. feels loaded. I can't manufacture. I mean, maybe if it's there spontaneously, but I'm not going to be able to gin up this, uh, this feeling. Can't participate in that. I'm also made uneasy by group behavior. Plus just the pressure of like the costume and going out and getting it. And what, what am I going to be? I don't know what I want to be. Sort of like tattoos. I have no idea. Like, what am I supposed to, <laughs> what am I supposed to put on my body? I don't know. I'm an empty vessel. I've got no inspiration. It's too much pressure. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest once again is Michelle T. I feel like we should get to Michelle instead of listening to me. Exercise my uh, holiday demons. I had a, a very, very good time talking with her. She made it very easy on me. She was a wonderful guest and uh, she's a wonderful writer. And her new novel, One More Time, is called Black Wave, available now from feminist press here she is folks this is michelle t uh, outside boston chelsea massachusetts is the name of the town okay five minutes outside boston but it feels like five years really yeah kind of i mean probably not today as suburbia much. no the opposite it's like the inner city oh it is it's like that we've heard so much about yeah Kind of. It's like, I don't know uh, what to compare it to in Los Angeles. I, it, when I lived in San Francisco for so many years, 
um, I lived in the mission district, which felt a lot like Chelsea to me. It had a huge, it's an immigrant town. So mm. the immigrants have changed through time. When I lived there, it was like a lot of people from Puerto Rico and Cambodia. Isn't like, but isn't like the mission now super gentrified and oh, this, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm talking more about in the nineties when I moved to the mission and it felt a lot like Chelsea to me, but now no. What's totally. happened to Chelsea? Did Chelsea get gentrified? Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not gentrified to the levels of like San Francisco or a lot of like major cities are, mm. but it's definitely a few years ago when I was there, my, um, my grandfather was dying and I was hanging out with him and I stood out on his patio and I saw this like Natalie dressed gay man walking a French bulldog. And I was like, there goes the neighborhood. Well, you, got like that. you got a thing against French bulldogs. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, they both would have gotten their ass kicked when I was growing up. And that yeah. it was like really delightful. So in that way, the changes in the city are really cool that there's just like, I think about what kind of changes I would have benefited from when I was a kid there. And I think like more gay men walking French bulldogs would have been helpful for me. More French bulldogs generally can't, you can't go wrong. Yeah. There's like a a little cafe. There's like a gay owned cafe that does like, you know, art openings and readings and stuff. So, and it's, there's more theater stuff. There's like, it's one of those towns that like nonprofits are always trying to like throw services at because everyone there is like, there's just like a lot of underprivileged kids and whatnot. Okay. So I have a complicated relationship with the idea of gentrification. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I have, I had a conversation, a very good conversation with uh, an author named Jared Kobeck on this program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was talking about living in San Francisco and being driven away by the gentrification and also being sort of traumatized by it. Like you know, how it kind of ruined the neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, and that's y- a lot of people's experience. And yet, you know, if you're living in a neighborhood that is less than desirable or has like, you know, uh, a dangerous element to it or whatever it is, you know, if suddenly like there's a nice coffee shop that comes in and like maybe some more hipsters and a bookstore, it's, I mean, that can be kind of nice too. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you, well, I mean, just taking the mission since it is like such ground zero for gentrification, like the mission had coffee shops and bookstores. Yeah. So it didn't need those things. Right. That's not what we got. We got really expensive avant-garde pastry shops, Uh which I totally ate at, you know, but we got, (laughs) they were, (laughs) I mean, like it's hard to be mad at a pastry shop. Um, you know, like boutiques selling like $200 pairs of jeans, like weird lifestyle stores where you're like, I don't know what the store is, but they're selling like vintage electronics and Hudson blankets. It's making me feel sad inside. Yeah. It's like, I kind of want everything. And then I kind of want to torch the shop. Like, yeah. you know, I have a complicated relationship to it too. Cause I'm such a consumer and I like things, you know, we all but do, I also, though. yeah, but it's like, you know, you have to think outside yourself. Like it's not whether or not I like covet a Hudson blanket. It's like, what about everybody else in the neighborhood who's been here? And these are low income people that can't easily move. Like if they get booted from their house, it's not like, Oh, well, I guess I'll just go to this next place. It's like people. That's that's like with Katrina. People were like, why didn't they just leave? It's like, they didn't have anywhere to go. Yeah. I mean, moving costs a lot. I mean, I just moved to Los Angeles from San Francisco, you know, and like we spent a buck moving down here, you yeah. know, and we had it and I'm really grateful for that, but it's hard to just move even within your city. And if you're talking about like low income families and stuff like that, so that's the problem with it. It's yeah. not, it's not whether or not the neighborhood gets a little safer or less safe. And I mean, I, I lived in the mission from 1993 on and like, I don't know. I mean, I know things happened. I have friends who've gotten beat up and stuff like that. I was really lucky. I guess I never, I never got beat up, but I would walk around like three o'clock in the morning by myself drunk, like, like a smart person, like Mm. a smart female would. And, um, I don't know, like, I just felt like there is this, 
when you move into a neighborhood, you move into the neighborhood and it's like, it's not kind of like, okay, how can I change this neighborhood so that it's better for me? It's kind of like, where have I moved? Who are these people? Like, what's the scene? And I think that part of the problem with gentrification is people are moving in and just being like, okay, how can I now completely change this landscape? So it's filled with things that I want to do, things that I want to spend my money on and not really any regard for like what was already there or the impact that that has. Yeah. You know, I think a lot for San Francisco, I feel like if they had done, if the, if the city government had done something visionary at the same time, they were offering massive tax breaks to like Twitter and put together like a, almost like a, a board of, of people whose job it was to kind of deal with like the influx of cash that the city was going to have. It could have been a lot could have changed. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what could have done. I'm not a city planner, but it's like nobody was even considering the negative impacts of that level of wealth hit, hitting the city, yeah. even though everybody who lived there, who who lived in these neighborhoods, we saw it coming. We were just like, shit, like there goes our, our home, our community, our neighborhood, like all of it. All the artists getting driven out. Yeah. That's a bummer. It's a super bummer. Is that why you came to Los Angeles? In in part. I mean, a lot of my friends have left. Um, and a lot of the creative people I enjoyed like being in community with came here. Uh, and I'd been there for like 20 years. There's actually more opportunity for writers in LA. And once I had a baby, I suddenly wanted like to sweep me and my wife wanted to switch up, like who was going to try and make money, who was going to try and be with the baby. So there was a lot of, a lot of things kind of playing into it, but also, yeah, I mean, I just kind of got sick of, you don't want to live in a city that you're kind of always haunted by like how much better it used to be. You know, it just makes you, I didn't want to be one of those like jerks that are like this city used to be good and now it's not you know it's like god it's the the worst well there's there's something about that though because uh a lot of times i think people who uh you know uh pine for the old days or whatever you know like uh, rock and roll music or the music business (laughs) used to be so much better in the 70s that was the golden age the point that i'm trying to make is that I think people can often be pegged who fall into that mode as being cranky and old. Yeah. But sometimes, uh, they're actually nostalgic for the truth. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes it really was fucking better back in the old days. For sure. (laughs) I mean, like, I don't know, like the way, like just global capitalism has screwed up so much. I mean, I just think so many, like the whole kind of like, um, upsetting of various industries by like tech, which is always seen as like this awesome thing has often been like super shitty for workers and stuff. So yeah, totally. And it's like, you want to walk that line. Cause like, I don't actually like nostalgia and I don't like when people just have this weird, um, blind embrace of like their heyday. And that was the heyday. It's like so dumb when people think like that. It's like, think outside your own brain, you know, but, and also um, be receptive to the new. Yeah. Like, I think there's a closing off that happens where it's like, this is what I like. Yeah. This is what I'm always going to like and everything. Like, I don't have any open doors anymore, you know? Yeah. And it's like, guess what? There's always young people who are innovating there in, within this culture and are doing, taking everything that, that we're throwing at them and doing like weird, interesting things with it. And that's happening right now. And so pay attention to that. If you feel bummed out that like, you're not 20 anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's like one of the reasons why I wish I still taught college sometimes because you have interaction with college age people yeah. constantly. Yeah. And I always felt that was really healthy. Yeah. Like that, like to be interacting with people at that point in their, in their life, especially because there's a lot of, uh, optimism, openness, you know, that people are seeing their whole lives in front of them. Like, yeah, it's good to interact with that and, uh, and to have some connection to it because it's, it's hard to manufacture otherwise, you know what I'm saying? Unless you're, yeah. I mean, I just, uh, I have a new book out, so I'm doing a lot of traveling and I just did like three or two days. I did a whole bunch of events at this, um, college up in Chico, California and there's a lot of like young queers, like newly queer queers at the school. And like, 
they're so excited about being queer and it's like so funny because i'm just like you know like i kind of i don't i don't know like i i'm like 45 i'm like you know hooray i'm gay whatever who cares so it's just like so nice to like see these young people who i'm just like wow it's still an exciting kind of discovery to have about yourself and it's still well and also it's like still probably a, a, fun a, world a, a to relief enter. to be out and to be yeah. yourself and to you know yeah at that age i, I mean I, I guess things have changed pretty radically and um you know, I think a lot of kids these days are probably out really early. I think so, yeah. Whereas I think uh, our generation maybe not not so much. No, I don't. I mean, not my generation. No, I mean, I feel like the younger people are, the earlier I think they've kind of come out. Mm. It and, seems like. Well, and or it's just, al- yeah. It's also like uh, you know, and, and I like. I, I feel like the millennials get a lot of talk. I feel like the baby boomers get a lot of talk. Gen X, <laughs> we sometimes get like passed over, but. I think there's something interesting about Generation X with regard to the fact that, um, you know, we've sort of covered uh, a, a window of time where a lot of changes happened, and we've seen it both ways. Like you spoke about tech, mm-hmm. like we had analog childhoods. Yes. Um, you talk about like uh, the experience of uh, being gay in America. Like obviously, over the span of our lifetimes, like that experience has changed radically. Yes, super radically. So you you sort of like you know we've run the gamut. Um, yeah. in a lot of ways, or at least, you know, been witness to a lot of like really radical change. We're like those really old people that, that went from like kerosene to electric lighting. And we saw, we grew up riding horses, but yeah. then we ended up, you know, having a car. I had a conversation yesterday <laughs> with a buddy of mine. Uh, our daughters are friends and it was like, he, he was having a conversation with his daughter. He said about his childhood and was trying to explain like, you know, when we, when, when I was young, like when we were in the car, we couldn't call anybody, you know, and the, the point of his story was that his daughter like couldn't even process it. That you just couldn't call anyone from wherever you wanted. Just the it, most basic aspects of our lives now that we take for granted. Yeah. You know, they weren't there. And, uh, you like know. remember when like somebody called you and if you weren't home, you just like missed the call. Yeah. You just didn't get that call. That was it. You would never know that they called you. There wasn't even an answering machine. You had to like ride your bike over to your friend's house to like see if they were there. Yeah, like, you know, totally. Like, it's better. I'm sorry. <laughs> Something about inconvenience is good. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know though. I, I can't, I guess, I, I guess at this point I'm so ensconced. I can't hardly think of it any other way. But um, here's a question though. Do your kids like play out in the street or is it like... Are you afraid that they'll be like kidnapped or something? I try not to be that way because I read an article in the paper not too long ago about Germany and how like (laughs) German parents just like send their four-year-olds to the store (laughs) and like they don't coddle and it's like, you know what I'm saying? It's like this completely different mode. Yeah. And yet then recently one of my neighbors was like, oh, by the way, I got up to pee at four in the morning and looked out my window, just happened to look out my window and there are like two dudes in my driveway with flashlights. Whoa, really? Yeah. And so it's like, and then you read like the local, you know, I'll read like the little police blotter every once in a while and be like, oh shit, there's like, we live in a city. Right. Right. Totally. And then I just think like, I grew up in like such a city with with a very active police blotter and like a mayor who'd actually been like, like arrested for flashing, but then was still the mayor, like got elected mayor. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that kind of a place. And like, we just were like my mother was always sending me to the store for like cigarettes for her, you know? And like, I don't know. It's, it's so, it's so strange to me to think of like my kid's only two. So it's like not really an issue right now, but to think of him getting a little older and be like, what, he doesn't play out front or like on our street. It's so, it's so strange. I don't know. Like, did we all just get really scared and make this sort of group 
decision or yeah, is, is it necessary? I don't know. You know, I don't like that fear. I don't either. I don't like the constant locking of doors. Yeah. It sort of drives me crazy when I catch myself doing it. And I have this conversation with my wife because like, she's more of a door locker, especially when it comes to our cars. Mm-hmm. Like we'll be going somewhere and she'll be like, did you lock the car? And I'll be like, who fucking cares? It's a one in 10,000 chance that someone's going to come like rifle yeah. through our car. And yet it I get- seems much less, it seems more likely than that. Even though you're right. It is that I remember it- I have a friend who was like, so she's, she can get spooked kind of easily. And she, she had like a travel trailer out in her backyard and she, she had some people subletting her place. She came back early from a trip and was staying in, in her travel trailer. And she contacted me and she was just like, just please tell me that like no one's going to murder me in my travel trailer. And I was like, let's unpack this. Like, so that would mean that there would have to be a, like, like a psycho killer in Portland right now. And they'd have to be in your neighborhood of Portland and they'd have to want to go on the prowl and try to find someone to kill. And they'd have to walk by your travel trailer and then think that was a good idea to decide if somebody was maybe in. It's like when you just unpack it, you're like, chances are no one's going to murder you in your travel trailer. I'm not going to. She was fine. (laughs) This was a long time ago. She's living a happy, healthy life. Yeah. Got rid of the travel trailer. And then to play devil's advocate, it can freak me out to think about because this stuff does happen. Right. And so some people do get murdered in yes. their travel trailer. Right. And then you're just like, you were the fool who slept in the travel trailer and got or, yourself killed. Or just the unlucky. Like just yeah. like the way that certain human beings are just deeply unlucky and come into contact with evil or like evil Ugh. people. Do you understand how I that- absolutely know what you're saying. Yes. I think about this all the time. I actually want to do some writing on it. Yeah. But like, why? Why? Why in the world? I mean, I think... It's not quite as, as 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 dramatic as good and evil, but even just being a person who got out of the town that I'm from, when like it's not a town people really get out of. Like when you, you know, being out on the West Coast, like if I meet people from Massachusetts, basically like everybody I meet is from Newton. It's really it's become this joke. People say they're from Boston. Oh, part of Boston, Newton. I'm like you're from Newton. It's like nobody gets out of Chelsea. Newton, Newton's like a uh, posh, right? Yeah, it's a little on the posher side. People can afford to like send their kids to college, give them some money to go to the other side of the country, set up a life, that kind of thing. Right. Chelsea, it's like people are trying to like move to you know to their next apartment in the city or something but um but yeah and i just think why like me and my sister somehow how did you get out i don't even know like i just i had a girlfriend who wanted to go who was very privileged and just felt like like you, you one does up and go somewhere like it just didn't i don't know and she was like let's move to tucson i have a friend who just went there and i was like okay, I'm going to Tucson. So I just kind of followed her. And then when our relationship fell apart, I didn't want to go back to Massachusetts. And my um, my best friend had moved to San Francisco. So I just went there and stayed with him. You know, my it, sister went to college. That's how she got out. She, what, fi- she figured out how to go to college. You got like a scholarship or something? Or some yeah. Um, she got some, she was like the valedictorian of her class. She was super, super smart, is super, super smart, high achieving person. So yeah, that that was her kind of path. But out. you're pretty sharp yourself. Thanks a lot. So I mean, that's but I mean, that's probably part of it is that you like you know you talk about like you don't know how it happened. Yeah. And we talk about luck and bad luck and mm-hmm. everything in between. Like you know maybe genetically you you got the good brains. Yeah, I mean who who knows? It's, it's something you'll never figure out. It's no doubt just like a just like a, a mishmash of so many different things. So, uh, yeah, well, we just had to pause there for a second cause there was refrigerators buzzing <laughs> in the background. <laughs> um, but you got out, you went to Tucson and then you, uh, went to San Francisco Yeah, and you were there for how long? Uh, like 23 years, I think. Oh. And I just thought I was going to pass through. I thought I was going to be like, Oh yeah. You said you, said you had person. been there for 20 years Yeah, and then you burned out. Yeah, I guess so. But it's a weird how you can show up someplace thinking that you're going to be. Um, 
you know, I, I don't know, just showing up, maybe hanging out here for a few months, a year, and then all of a sudden you look up and two decades have gone yeah, by. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But when I got there, I was like, oh, everything that I'm interested in is like happening right here, right now. So it was just... It's also a lovely city. Yeah. You could land in a much worse spot than San Francisco. Oh, yeah. No, it was great. It was really affordable then. There was like a huge, like um, very kind of DIY writing communities scenes happening. Obviously a huge queer scene. So it was like perfect for me. And to be young in San Francisco. Yeah. In the 90s. In the 90s. You know, totally. <laughs> it was the best. I always wanted, like when I was young growing up outside Boston, I knew that New York city was kind of happening. It was like this late seventies, early eighties. And I just knew what was going on there. And I was like, so upset that like I was missing it. So I feel really happy that I got to experience something that felt like a real like place and time. Like something was happening in San Francisco in the nineties, you and, know? And you got to see it. Yeah. Yeah. You I know? feel really lucky. Maybe something happened in LA. I never feel like I've ever been anywhere where it was really happening. But really? maybe I could be sitting in the middle of it right now and have yeah, no idea. This is it, man. This is it. <laughs> but I mean, I, I do feel like Los Angeles, uh, you talk about San Francisco, you talk about New York. Like the one thing I would say that Los Angeles has going for it in terms of its ability to, um, uh, you know, allow for, an arts, like an artistic, uh, existence is the fact that it's got so much landmass to it. Like yes. San Francisco, you're just running out of room, uh -huh. Manhattan, you're running out of room. Yeah. It's, it's an Island, you know, yeah. uh, Los Angeles is like, you know, that's what sprawl gets you. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I agree with you. I agree with you. It's like, there's, it seems like, even though I know it's still more expensive here than it ha has been. And people talk a lot about that. There's just like, you don't find yourself like having to go like move of way out into the East Bay or something like that. Well, yeah. And it's also big. I mean, you know, it's just like if, if you live in, you can live on like the West side of town near the beach. And if you live over here, it's like, you're probably not going to see that person very much unless you really make plans. Yeah. I understand that now that I'm here, but you know, my sister lives here and she lives on the West side and I would come up from San Francisco and I would visit her and I would get in touch with my friends who live in like, you know, Echo Park or whatever and be like, Hey, I'm in town. Come see me. And they're like, you're not in town. <laughs> not I'm not coming <laughs> over there. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I just took a plane here. Like we're in the same town. And one point I don't drive. And so I had, my friend was like, why don't you take a bus and come, come to me? I was like, okay. And it was like three hours later. I was like, okay, I guess I understand. So how are you getting around? You Uber, you, you Uber a I lot. I just Uber all over the place. You do. I do. Yeah. That's not so bad though. If you don't do it a lot. I mean, like if you're doing it constantly, I guess it could get exorbitant, but I know more than one person who lives that way. Me too. So I have a friend who I guess, uh, kind of kept track of what she was spending for one year and added it up and it wasn't actually more expensive than her owning a car. Right. So yeah, exactly. Or the I monthly feel liberated. Yeah. yeah, totally. And it's like, and you don't have to think about driving. You can be in the back of your car on the, or be in the back of the car on the phone. Yes. You know? It's the best. Exactly. Reading a book. I love that. Do you I ever, get like, you ever have sketchy drivers? Um, yeah, yeah. Never to the extent that like, I felt like I was in danger, but just more like this guy's weird. Yeah. Like some guy wanted to tell me all about his romantic history. Like he wanted some advice. He had like some lady on the way to the airport right then, but he didn't tell her that he had another lady. And he was like, I was like, I love giving advice. So I kind of got hooked. He kind of hooked me in a little bit. And then he just started getting like a little too TMI about their sex life. And I was like, I don't want to hear about it anymore, no, dude. And no, I was like, this is getting weird. This is getting weird now. <laughs> Did you say that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I was good. like, I don't want to know about it anymore. And he's hey. like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had, um, yesterday was a great ride. I had, uh, I was on my way to a reading where I was going to tell a ghost story at a travel town, um, on a train in Griffith park Oh wow! as part of the Griffith park reading series. And the dude had like, a screen strapped to the back of the seat in front of me playing Halloween. 
So that was really great. So yeah. Got to like hang out and watch a horror movie. Well, for that's Halloween. good. He yeah. had a screen in, in his car. Yeah. He had just like a little tiny like DVD player or something just strapped to the back. That's like a nice little uh, yeah. extra. I mean, I guess if I didn't like scary movies, I would have been really stressed out. But I can't. the night before I'd gone to like not scary farm. I'm still hoarse from it. So I was like, just <laughs> still in the mode. I was like, that's right. Bring on Michael Myers. This is great. Um, okay. And, uh, I feel, but I kind of feel bad too, that you can't tip these Uber drivers. But then again, it also makes it sort of nice. Cause you don't have to deal with all of it. You just get in, get out. It's the way it works. I have such tipping anxiety because I'm always scared that I'm either tipping too much or not enough. And like, I can just, it just both triggers like my people pleasing problems and my scarcity issues. So I love that. I can just <laughs> be like, thank you. Have a wonderful day. And just like, be like, we just had a ride together. That was it. Onward, sir. You're getting five stars, you're you know? Getting, and, yeah. And then I just leave and don't think about it. It's great. Uh, okay. So let's talk about you creative person. Okay. And then I'm going to ask you for advice since you like to give advice. Okay, cool. Um, you get into writing when? Like, I've always written, um, like literally like, like since I was like, really little, I was trying to write books and trying to write novels and trying to write, uh, adapt Judy Bloom books into plays in fifth grade and writing spec scripts for the facts of life and just, you know, everything, <laughs> lots of poetry. Wait, you were writing spec scripts for the facts of life as a child? Yeah. Fifth grade. For real? Yeah. For real. Who was your character? Who did you like the best? I loved Joe. Joe I loved Blair too, though. I loved how snotty she was. It was very attractive as somebody who's like somewhat fearful to see someone so such being such a bold kind of jerk, you know, right, right. But Joe, I mean, Joe had the most heart of all those folks. Of course. I like Joe too. Yeah. I, I had a big crush on Joe as a boy. Uh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Did you grow up to be one of those guys who gets crushes on lesbians? Um, I mean, I think it's possible, but I mean, it was, you probably I, know. Yeah. Sadly. What, what's that? <laughs> you probably know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I mean, it's like not some, I'm thinking over my crushes or whatever. And, uh, sure there's a few lesbians in there but it was never like super pronounced <laughs> but i did love joe yeah I, and i didn't have any sense of uh like whether she was a lesbian or not me when neither I was a kid. yeah no i i didn't i wasn't i wasn't dialed into that at all i just knew she was like tough she and was, i just loved that about her you she know was wounded <laughs> joe <laughs> they're weird little ponytail little butch ponytail with like one little ponytail on the side then the other and they all kind of join up they kind of merge into the central artery ponytail in the back you know <laughs> That was a good hairstyle. I feel like, you know, it's interesting to think about TV because we, you know, we talked earlier about like, uh, how much has changed in America with respect to, uh, gay culture and whatnot. And you think about like Hollywood shows, uh, or television shows and movies of days past and how much of this stuff was sort of like subtly implied right? versus how it became gradually more and more explicit to whereas now people, you know, it's just wide open. But back yeah. in the day, I feel like there's a lot of, cause I mean, a lot of people who work in entertainment are gay Yeah, and I feel like they were sort of getting those messages in there and those characters in there in whatever ways they could maybe. Yeah. And this weird little subversive, like we're just going to throw Joe out into the world and those who get it, get it, yes. you know, totally like peppermint patty, yeah. you know, or whatever. <laughs> Got to be really, you know, I hate when people bring back things that have already happened. Cause I just think most things were stupid the first time and it takes so much money to create like a movie or a TV show. And there's some like, go make something new. But that said, a reboot of the facts of life with an openly queer Joe who's like having pronounced sexual tension with Blair, you know, and like a Natalie who's like a body positivity activist, like a feminist fat activist. And then like a Tootie who's like a Black Lives Matter activist. Could, I, I mean, I think you just struck like 2016. Upon, I think you just struck upon something. God, I can t- see it all. Talk to me, Hollywood. I'm here. <laughs> I'm here to write the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a really good idea. It's a beloved show. And I feel like too, I mean, like uh, Hollywood loves a reboot. They do. They love an established brand. They don't want to have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. 
God. Are you trying to do that? Yeah, I am. How's that I going? Am. I don't know. Is it driving you crazy? Yeah, it's driving me insane. Yeah. If only my agents would call me. I know. If they'd only call me back. It's all bananas. If they, only they wouldn't send me emails that say like, okay, I'm going to give you a call next week. And then like they don't. It's no and hug. then you're just like hanging by the phone just being like, uh, come on, agent. And I'm going to email them tomorrow. That's my plan. First and, of the month. Well, plus it's like, I always get, and, and this is, this, I think a mode you can't get into as a writer where you start to think about like how many people are trying to do this. Oh, in this God. town, yeah, the uh, absolute glut of yeah. people trying to get their seat at the table. Totally, all many... smart, all funny, all talented. Yep, and yeah. it's like, and it's like, where's my seat? How am I going to get my seat? How am I going to get you know my piece of this pie or whatever? And, yeah, um, that can get like that can drain me of all energy. It's bad to think like that. It's like walking into a bookstore. Like I went into Romans the other day as somebody who just has like a new book out just in the past couple months. I went into Romans, you know, just to buy books for friends for birthdays and whatnot, and. It's just like six million books and it's like yours is nowhere to be seen. And you're just like, how, <laughs> this is crazy. Who's going to buy all these books? Like yeah. what are, what's going on with all these books? Who wrote all these books? Who's like buying them? Who's promoting them? Like, I don't know. It can give you a kind of crazy existential crisis or something. Yeah. Yeah. Not entirely unearned. I mean, it's like really, who's going to buy all these books? Yeah. It's like, like maybe feel anxious, but I couldn't tell exactly what I was anxious about, you know? Yeah. And, and also like, I'm anxious for the people who run the store. Like, how are you going to sell any of these books? Oh yeah. There's that. For it's sure. a lot of real estate. You got all these books, but like, how do you, how do people find them? Then again, uh, you know, I will get an itch for a specific book. Like I'll, I'll be like, I need this book Yeah. and I'll go into a bookstore and I'll be so relieved if they have it in stock and I'll grab it and I'll buy it. And I'm not alone. There are people, it's just, right. you know, there are people out there who want a book. They go to the bookstore. Totally. Store. Yeah. Yeah. If I walk into a bookstore, I leave with the book. I just feel like I didn't pay my taxes for a long time because I was so broke in my twenties. I couldn't believe that, that I owed taxes. I was so upset about it. Like one, one time I owed $75. I was so mad. And I wrote like on the little thing on your check where it's like, what's this for? I was like, war, you know, I just like that was my little <laughs> protest to the government, you know? And then the next time I think I owed like something like $300, which is like, who wouldn't love to owe $300? But that was all I had in the bank. And I was like, I'm just not going to pay. And we're just going to see what happens. And what happened was 10 years later, I got sober. And then you have to deal with like all the ways that you just were like letting your life unravel. And so once I got, um, my tax, you know, got a, got a tax person, started paying taxes. I was like, Oh, the tax write-off things are tax write-offs. So as somebody who grew up really broke and then lived broke as an adult for a long time, I can be really scared to spend money if I have any. So it's been this great thing where I'm like, I can always buy books. It's a tax write-off. It's yeah, like, yeah. it's actually great to buy books. So whenever I go into a bookstore, I always live with a book and I feel like it's almost like a political action. Like I'm donating money to like a bookstore or the book industry, the or, cause. but I'm not donating. I'm getting something of course, but you know, it's like, it just feels like such a great reason to spend money. There are worse reasons to spend money. Yeah. Books and flowers. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Never feel bad about that. And food. I mean, uh, yeah, I, but, and food. I mean, but certain kinds of food, I feel like there can be overpriced like restaurants. I can bum me out sometimes. Like I love a good meal, but I can sometimes sit down, go through the whole meal, come out and be like, did I really need to, like, I know it's nice to not have to cook, <laughs> but it's like, did I, you know, it just gets expensive. It I, does get expensive. I feel like, but then again, I guess, you know, you live in a city, these restaurant tours are trying to pay their, uh, rent. It's true. It's true. I eat, you eat out a lot. No, <laughs> no, I wish I did. <laughs> I love eating out. It's the best. I love cooking too, though. I guess I just love food. Have you ever done like gone to like a crazy, like Michelin starred restaurant and just like had that experience where you dropped like hella cash on a crazy, oh, crazy yeah, meal? Sure. Which one was, what's like the best experience like that you had? Oh, I'm trying to think maybe my, my wife and I on our uh, honeymoon were in Italy. Oh, I ate, ate at this restaurant in Positano. That was pretty good. 
but it was like weird. Cause it was like a bowl of cherry tomatoes. They were the best fucking cherry tomatoes <laughs> I've ever eaten. My, Cause they were just picked out of some like Italian garden or whatever. Right. But it was like, it was like that. It wasn't yeah. like some very complicated dish that I was so impressed by. It was more like, those are some, like those are real tomatoes. Like whatever I've been eating is a lie. God, and that's was, great though. Yeah. That's great. You got to eat those. I did. I, I fear that all of our produce in America is a lie. It's, We're all eating plastic food when we've forgotten. It's been so subtle. It's like when you walk into a room, it smells like poop. And then eventually you stop smelling poop, you know, what are you trying produce. to say? What are you trying to say? You know, it's like, yeah. we've stopped. We've just become accustomed to sort of like flavorless vegetables. We don't realize what they're supposed to taste like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's like, I feel like I, back in the day, people knew what vegetables and fruits were in season right. and you would eat those. But now because of the global markets and everything, like you can get whatever you want any time of year, Yeah, but it had to travel like 6,000 miles to get to your, to your refrigerator. Yep. I, I just feel like maybe if you, uh, I mean, I, it sounds really bougie, but it's like probably better to go to farmer's markets, which you can do in Los Angeles. Yeah. One of the, be- like one of the benefits of living in California is access to that stuff. Totally. Totally. Because of this, you know, at least what, whatever's left of the central Valley, you know, now that we're in like a biblical drought, but totally, you know, we were getting a, a, a farm box for a little while. And then I was like living in the tyranny, like staring down the barrel of the farm box every week, just being like, I got to eat these beets. What am I going to do with these beets? Or like some, they sometimes just like kind of like fuck with me a little bit and give me like a giant bag of ghost peppers. And then a whole bunch of like, clearly like nobody else wanted the peppers, but I didn't go online and check like the no peppers box. So I got everybody else's peppers and I was like, damn you farm box. I don't even like peppers. They repeat on me. But, um, so after just feeling like worried that I was maybe getting rid of too much produce, you know, and feeling like horribly guilty about it. We cut the farm box and now we don't eat as good. Yeah. We just don't eat as well. Yeah. So I'm going to bring back the farm box. It was, it was worth it. It was good. It was worth it. Even if I throw away a couple wilted carrots, you know, at the end of two weeks or I let an avocado go bad somehow. You ever done blue apron? No. It sounds like a, I mean, somebody got that for me, uh, as a gift, like three blue apron meals. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it was a very, it was after my son was born. So it was like, here, you know, oh, yeah, that's here's some food. Things like that are great after that. I mean, yeah, but it, you know, you have to cook it even oh. though they've done all the prep for you. You still have to like put it together. And I found myself it's like Ikea food kind of. Yeah. It's like a pre, yeah. It's like a prepackaged, all the ingredients have, but you still have to like mince things. I don't know how to mince things. Oh, they should at least give it to you mince. I mean, you know, and I just found myself, um, I guess I got down on myself. I was like, Hey, I should know how to do this better at this age. I should not have minced some things. I should not have put together a proper meal. Um, but then it was also like, you know, time, like who you, you still have to, even though all this preparation has been done for me, I still felt like there's no way I have time for this. It's hard. Like yeah. to cook, like to, to really, you have to have some free time. You do. You have to like plan for it or something like right now, since I'm working at home, I can, kind of cut off at a certain time and go in and, and I really like it. I like go, I like, cause I work with my head on my computer all day, drinking copious amounts of coffee, just getting like all like crazy in my brain. And it's so nice to then just kind of come out and do something with my hands and do something that is creative, but requires a totally different part of my brain. It's also a nice way to sort of like come out of my weird, like writing zombie state to interact with my family again. Yeah. Cause I'm so weird. Aren't you so weird after you've been writing and then you have I to was talk writing, to people? I was like editing when you got over here and I felt weird. Yeah. You seemed a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> like know if you seem weird or not. Guy. <laughs> no, but you're just in zombie mode. You're like yeah. kind of soft brained or whatever. And yeah. it's, it's hard to be like instantly social. You yes, know, we're it's like really, really challenging. You need a little bit of a, a transition and I get it. Like, um, you know, and I get how cooking 
sort of like painting or something visual mm-hmm. um, could be like a nice counter to the interior writing work. Yeah. But if you do use cooking as like a way to sort of transition back into your life or whatever, and as like a relaxing thing to do after work, like, do you have to pre-plan yes. what you're going to cook? Yeah. I, sh- I need to know that ideally like the night before, if not that morning. Okay. Yeah. I, was, I have to, I have to have an idea. And do you have like a, a, a wheelhouse of like three or four or five or six like recipes that you're really good at? Or do you try new ones? And like, it's like this big science experiment. I love trying new ones. I love the science experiment this morning. I actually tried, uh, making pumpkin pancakes for the first time and, uh, it was a success. It was it a worked su- out well. Pancakes yeah. are, you know, yeah. they're always good. I know. Right. Who doesn't like a pancake? They're really fluffy. They were so fluffy that some of them were still a little like doughy on the inside. So it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. Um, but yeah, and then also if there's just like vegetable, like I guess my basic go-to is just like brown rice and some sort of roasted vegetables, or I can do like a crazy salad with like lots of crap in it and like a homemade dressing, yeah, stuff like that. That's good. Yeah. Healthy. Yeah. You're yeah. He- you're pretty healthy? Yeah. When I'm cooking for us, I'm pretty healthy. Yeah. And But like you mentioned earlier, like that you got sober. So yeah. back in the day in San Francisco, not so healthy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You had a, you had a decade or I mean, a yeah, period I mean, I guess or... it's not that very healthy to be doing like crystal math and whatnot, but yeah, no, not, not too healthy and not very concerned about it. Just going for it. Just, yeah. All your twenties. Yeah. All my twenties, my whole twenties. And what's your relationship with that time now? Like, do you, I mean, you, you, cause it sounds like based on what we were talking about earlier that you have uh, a lot of affection for it. Like you have affection for your youth and your younger days in San Francisco. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I even have a lot of affection for my addiction as it played out in those days. Like I'm really happy to not be there anymore. But, um, crystal meth is rough. It's really rough. Was that the one? Was that the, the, I mean, that was my favorite, but I kind of was like a little bit of a trash can and would just like, I I thought I was like, I just want to have experiences, man. I'm a writer, you know, I just wanted to like experience life. And so I would pretty much do anything that was available because I wanted to just sort of like have an experience, but I was mostly just an alcoholic. Um, but then got to take the edge off that crystal meth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, actually it's kind of the opposite. It's like if you're on cocaine or crystal meth, you can keep drinking like oh, forever. Right. So yeah. that was kind of awesome for me. I liked that a lot. You ever like take a part of television or anything? Like that? No, do I that. never did that. I did. I did kind of go crazy with a glue gun though. And like just gluing like feathers and fake rhinestones on things. Okay. I might've done that anyway. That was like- kind of <laughs> just was maybe where I was at right then. Like, it's hard to know. Glu- gluing them on what? Like boxes and stuff. Okay. Just like, or like my desk. You crafting? No. Are you a crafty person? I'm not a crafty person. Okay. Not really. I mean, like I have some craft boxes. Like I like to be crafty sometimes. I've been good at doing like crush art sometimes for, if I have a crush on someone, you know, like a like shrine, a, <laughs> I'll build, <laughs> like I'll build a, like a, a really creepy methy shrine <laughs> in my closet to them. Oh my God. That's really funny. I did send somebody once a note that was like, like a love note that was in like serial killer kind of cutting out the letters from magazines. I did do that once. You did. I did. I did. How did it go? I don't think it went very well actually at all. <laughs> well, you, I don't think so. We, we learned I, through our experiences, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I try, I was trying to play, I played with pipe cleaners this morning with my um, son. I was trying to get him interested in something other than the television. He was getting very sad that I wouldn't put the TV on. I was like, look, pipe cleaners, you know, like, come on. Yeah. Gotta be good parents. What do other kids do? You know, just give them a screen. Yeah. Uh, what about creativity? You know, creatively, you said you, you were, you know, you were always a writer. You were writing spec scripts for facts of life as a child. (laughs) Um, when you were in your, uh, like using days, you know, uh, doing drugs and being a young adult and whatnot, um, how did you do writer like writing wise? 
Well, it's like, th- I think the thing about people who end up having problems with drugs and alcohol is that it works for a little while mm-hmm. and then it stops working and you just think it's going to come back, you know? So it worked for a while. Like I wrote my book, the Chelsea whistle on a lot of cocaine and I think it worked out. Okay. How long did it take? <laughs> 36 hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, it took about, I don't know. Cause I, wrote, I was writing so strangely. Like I had written a lot of, um, like standalone, like almost short stories, but they were all memoir. So then I ended up having like an abundance of all this like personal narrative material. And I kind of was separating them into different books. And so yeah, which, you've written a lot of memoirs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a lot I have, of, I know. Well, and I, you know, as somebody who is working on a book that's autobiographical, like I feel a kinship and I also feel great admiration because I, it's, it's really grueling. It's always grueling to write a book. It and is. I don't want to diminish anybody who's not working like in a really explicitly autobiographical vein, but to, um, kind of pull your insides out and put them on a page like that, that that's some hard work. It is. But one of the benefits of early alcoholism was that I didn't give a fuck, yeah. you know, and I had a lot of bravado about it. And I had a lot of like, people should have acted right then, you know, kind of attitude and, um, and drinking and everything definitely enabled that. So it's more like now that I'm like 45, I'm much more sympathetic to people's issues with having appeared in my books. Yeah. Yeah. And and on my own and also my own vulnerability. I don't feel that vulnerable though. It's more like for whatever reason, I don't feel very, um, I I have the ability to kind of put things out there and I just, I don't trip on it too hard, but I do, I do feel, but just to get it right and to like, yeah, I don't know. Just like the, the, the excavation process, you know, like that part of it. Um, like I'm, I'm not too terribly concerned. I say this right now (laughs) (laughs) with like the experiences or whatever that are the, the grist for the mill. Mm -hmm. Like that's how art is made. I like, you know, I don't think you have to get too, uh, touchy feely about that, but it's just the, the grind of making it art. Yeah. Yeah. And doesn't it, does it ever get for you? Um, do you ever worry about like, wow, I'm really focused on myself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've definitely had moments where I'm like, this is insane. Like I can't write another book about me, 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 I, 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 you know, and I definitely, that's what pushed me to start writing fiction. So I write fiction as well, but whatever, like I always come back to my own stories and my own experiences. Like that's just how I'm wired. That's what I'm compelled to write about. Like when I'm walking through the world, writing in my brain, that's kind of a lot of what I'm, what I'm working on. It's just what's there. It's just how some writers do it. Yeah, definitely. Do you have like a sense of, uh, in like, you know, the broad scope of your work because you've done different things, uh, which book or books or which kind of books that you've written resonate the most? Like with other people? Yeah. Um, God, you know, people really liked Valencia and it seemed to be like a perennial favorite because it really captured this time and place that's gone in San Francisco, but also really captures the experience of being like newly queer in the way that I think, and this will probably change as we were talking about people having different experiences coming out earlier and it not being such a big deal. But for me and for, I think my generation, it was like everyone got a second adolescence. Like our first adolescences were really weird because we weren't really ourselves. We didn't really know like everything that straight kids were doing that we thought we were supposed to be doing wasn't really resonating. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I'm queer. Here's this party scene. You get to have this whole other protracted adolescence. And so I think it really captures that experience. 
But my new book, Black Wave, people have been saying that they like it the best, which makes me really happy. It's always nice to hear. Well, it's also somebody. Uh, it's a union between memoir and fiction. Yeah. So it's sort of like both of your uh, creative impulses tied yeah. into one. Is yeah. It, is totally. it the first time you've done that? Yeah. Okay. And I and I love. It's my favorite. It was like I had the. It's my favorite that I've worked on. So okay. So that's nice. And this is why we talked before. Uh, I think we came on. I wanted to ask you about this because I'm, uh, I'm thinking about it. Uh, about your book and I'm thinking about the way that it sort of, you know, feels like a traditional memoir book and then suddenly, you know, opens up. There are different levels to it. Yeah. Um, did that happen in the edit? Like, did you, and did you expect to do this at the outset or was it one of those things where you started writing and then suddenly cracked it open and it became this totally different thing that surprised you? I mean, it's had a lot of incarnations and, and I, I had a lot of different processes with it. Um, I thought of putting some magic into it from the be- from the beginning. What it was supposed to be a more sort of traditional memoir that was much more overtly about this one particular relationship that I'd been in for a long time, and it had ended. It ended really dramatically, and I and I felt very freed up to finally write about it. And that's all I wanted to do. And then in doing that, um, my ex sort of heard about it. Well, I read a piece of it at a reading he was at, and I didn't think it would bother him, but it really did. And I was like, oh. I don't know that I have the skin to like go through this. Like this person is still in my life and, and I feel more, I don't know. I I just was like, okay, I'm going to take this. I'm going to kind of pull the story out, but it was like pulling the spine out of the book, you know? And then I just didn't know what I was going to do, but I was like, I'm going to use it as a, just as a creative sort of, I don't know. I'm going to try and figure out a creative way to save this book while taking this main story out. And so, because I'd already laid some tracks with some, sort of magical realism kind of stuff. I was like, I'm just going to go heavy on that and I'm just going to see what happens. And I kind of got a bigger case of the fuck it's about it. Cause I was like, this book is getting like, it's always, I've been struggling with it straight along, but this is so crazy that I'm now ta- removing the core of the story. Like, I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm just going to go crazy. And you did. And yeah. And I had a lot of fun doing it. I really, I don't know if you know that, um, book, the people of paper by Salvador Placentia. No. It's, it's a really interesting book. McSweeney's published the hardcover of it and it's told in a lot of different voices and there's a fictional story happening. And at some point the narrator breaks through and you learn that this, the narrator is this wounded man who's just got over this really severe heartbreak. And I just, I was like, Oh man, he just like lifted the roof off of the story. And it was really exciting to me. And so I felt like, you know, it's nice to read as somebody who, whose, you know, main drive is to write memoir and just to be really like, I write, I'm sticking to the truth. You know, there's not a lot of imagination that goes into it. Not that kind of wild imagination. So it's really fun for me to read books that are really wildly imaginative. And it just like opens up some part of my brain and I'm like, oh yeah, I am a writer, which means I also could do something like that. There's no rules. There's no rules. Yeah. Yeah. So, and if it's fun to write, you know, chances are it's probably fun to read. Yeah, I think which, that's true. Which could spell doom for my book. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> well, you must have had some moment. Oh yeah, I mean, some that, moment where you you felt satisfied. Many moments. Yeah, okay. many moments. But there's also just like the grind of it, and I think like you know the reality is that uh, finished a big draft. Very excited about it. Congratulations! It's sitting right here. I see it. It is a big draft. It's very uh, impressive. And then the reality is that there's just more work to do. I got to do edits and that's natural at this stage. It's not like I've done 10 rounds of edits. Like I just finished the big manuscript. I pushed through. Isn't it part of you that's just hoping that like you are that genius child that you just (laughs) put it out there and it's perfect. Uh, I just think that all the time, like it's like, I, I get so anxious, like, 
I've done something wrong because it's not perfect the first time out. But like nobody's is. It doesn't make any sense. It's like Arundhati Roy, the god of small things. I think she said she changed like not a word of it, which might be you kidding? Total apocryphal. Screw bullshit. you, Arundhati Roy. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody likes you anyway. She's by the way. She's got a new novel, uh, the first novel since that book coming out. Oh, we'll see how that one. Came. Maybe, <laughs> I mean, let's see how many drafts she wrote of that one. I I really liked the whole like beat poets like first thought, best thought kind of idea, you know, but it's a lovely thought. It's a lovely thought, but it, it also depends. I mean, I don't know. It depends on what you're doing, how much, you know, different books call for different things, like more structure, less structure. It's a, and it's like, I think the beat thing, especially for uh, a woman who spent her formative years in San Francisco and is a writer, like that had to infect you a little bit. The spirit of it is there. The spirit did infect me. And I felt kind of like it actually emboldened me in this funny way where I felt like not it really gave me carte blanche to like just do drugs and just do whatever I wanted. Cause these dudes all did it and were totally celebrated for it. And so then it became sort of a feminist cause that I was just right. was like, I'm going to do this and I'm a girl. So fuck you. you right. Know? Right. So it worked for a little while. Yeah. I mean, it's like, cause that's the thing though, is that I, I like, I love literary history and I always love, yeah, I, like, I like talking to writers and finding out kind of the stories behind the stories or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading a biography of Jack Kerouac and learning that he wrote on the road, he did write it really quickly, mm-hmm. but he also wrote it in a rare phase of sobriety where oh, really? yeah, like, I want to say the woman that he was staying with or was sleeping with at the time, I forget who it was because my memory is terrible, but he was basically staying at a woman's apartment. And as I recall it, she was basically mothering him, yeah, no bring, doubt. bringing him soup and coffee <laughs> while he worked Yeah, and it was just coffee and soup and he was like healthy and he cranked this out. And like, likewise, uh, Hunter S Thompson wrote, not that Hunter S Thompson is really a beat, but he wrote, but you know, I mean, he, he's, he's, he's part of that kind he, of canon to me. Yeah. And he, he wrote fear and loathing. Um, I want to say in a relative period of sobriety as well. Wow. What, I mean, relative, I think, sure. with him. but still it's just, I think that the mythology that's built up around, um, these guys and the way that one can easily sort of process it all and then like read a, you know, read some beat poetry or read a, you know, on the road or whatever. The takeaway as a young writer can be, um, inaccurate or misleading or, you know what I'm saying? You can, yeah. like, it can give you per, like permission to be lazy with your work. Totally <laughs> like to be lazy, to be a bad person, to be like, <laughs> right. like all kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. I love here. I love knowing that, you know, I definitely felt scared when I got sober that it would affect my writing negatively, that I wouldn't be able to work because what I realized is that like, you know, I thought I just like loved to write, but I really just like loved to drink. <laughs> like <laughs> well, suddenly once I was sober, it seemed like it's not that I drank while I wrote, I wrote while I drank. And I was like, what is going to keep me in the chair and go going forward when I'm not sort of bribing myself to sit there with you know, beer and cigarettes, because for me, I, I can feel sort of compulsive sometimes when I'm writing. It's like a weird, sweaty exercise. And it's just was nice to have like a cigarette or a beer to kind of drink and to kind of let me really, um, loosen myself into the story and lose myself in it. But, um, it definitely took me a little bit to kind of, I don't know, re reboot my brain, I guess. But, um, and, and is it kind of like when you, you know, like I was, uh, I'm comparing it in my head to like playing pool at a bar <laughs> where like for the first three beers, I'm really fucking good at pool. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly like I, I have like this one drink and it all tips and suddenly yeah. I, I suck at pool. Like when yeah. you're drinking while you're writing and you know, you sort of alluded to this earlier where you say for a while it works yeah. and then it doesn't. But mm-hmm. 
like as you're sitting there drinking, like, would you find that like, you know, the first 500 words you wrote were pretty good. And then as you got deeper into the night, it started to kind of come apart. It's hard to say. I mean, I think that I, you know, my handwriting got worse. That's for sure. I was writing in (laughs) notebooks. You know, one thing when I got sober, I had to switch to computers because my thoughts were coming so fast that I, I was getting a hand crampy and I just, computers helped me go faster, but I was like, get slower because I was drunk. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I think that it came out more or less okay. And then I, I would, I'd go through like two or three edits of it, but for the most part, it didn't seem significantly more terrible. The drunker I got, I also probably call it a day at some point. Um, but what happened is as my alcoholism progressed, then it was just sort of like, really bad. It was like, I wrote Valencia and then I think I just kept trying to write Valencia again. And it's like, you can only write one book about how much you drank and how many drugs you did and how many girls you had sex with in bar bathrooms. Like you can just do one book of that right? and you can't really do another book of that. So that was kind of hard for me because that's all my life was still in the sad sort of desperate kind of way of trying to kind of stay on top of the glory of that as it was slipping away. And so I just was writing crap. It's an interesting, it's an interesting idea for somebody who writes in a personal mode, like a, you know, a memoirist, mm-hmm. you know, it sort of is required in order to keep producing. I mean, a, you either are mining a very interesting youth mm-hmm. or your life sort of has to change. You have to have experiences to keep producing memoirs. It's really true. Yeah. You have to be able to grow. You have to be a person who's like not necessarily holding on to your story very yeah. tightly. Do you ever think to yourself, like, I got to do this cause I need a book. <laughs> um, no, but I have definitely thought, Oh, this would be, this will be great to write about. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's sure. hard not to think like that. Of course. You know, and sometimes you feel creepy for sure, but it's just how I process things. You know, mm, yeah. this is a scene. Yeah, totally. I need this person in my life because they're going to be a character. I'm going to, mm, no, I'm jo- I wouldn't do that. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm going to. But after that person leaves your life, you're like, Oh, that is a story yeah. that I'm going to write that story. Um, how did you get sober? Like what happened? Um, I don't know what happened. Honestly, I just, I had like a moment of clarity that like I needed to stop. I tried to stop for, I mean, I was just so like, my life was really chaotic. I had a lot of problems. I fought a lot with my, my boyfriend at the time. I was, I was always like crying. I just was kind of a mess. And I thought, you know, after thinking, oh, maybe it was all these other things. It's my astrological transit. It's this and that. I was like, maybe I just should not drink for a month just to see if I can do it. Just don't drink for a month. And I made it like almost the entire month. Um, and then I celebrated by having like a bloody orange margarita, blood orange margarita. Cause I just thought that was so elegant. It was like the dawn of like those kind of drinks suddenly appearing places. And I was like, well, that's like food. I mean, I should have that so much vitamin C. <laughs> and, and then it was right back down the can again, of course. And I could never do it again. I could never kind of figure out how to rack up those times. And I kept kind of going up and down and up and down. And it was really scary and, um, to feel so out of control of something so basic. And I, ha- I had a lot of friends and still do who are sober and, and one came to town who's somebody who's been sort of a mentor to me. And she was just like, how's not drinking going? And I just sort of like started sobbing, you know? And she was just like, she took me to a meeting and I just never drank again. You know, I was really ready for it. I think that program really actually works if you are desperate enough to kind of like not sort of like problematize it in your head and go, but this and, but that, but if you're just like, 
my life sucks. I don't even care. Like these people have nice skin and they seem happy. What are they doing? <laughs> I'll do what they're doing, yeah. you know, and see what happens. And, and so that's what I did. And it's, it's not like it's one size fits all. Like you can have your own, like everyone has their own individual experience. Of, For sure. Yeah. Know? There's a lot, there's a lot of wiggle room in there to yeah. be your own special snowflake self, you know? Right. Um, so, so yeah, so that's, that's how, that's how I did it. And it's really funny. Like I, I, you know, you're not really supposed to talk about it very much, obviously, yeah. but, um, as somebody who literally like built, started my writing career, writing about how much I drank and putting a sort of political spin on it, or this sort of devil may care, like this is like my character and, um, to then kind of not be able to talk about that actually not working and getting sober and also not wanting to propagate some sort of myth. Like I just put down alcohol and then I'm magically sober now because most people can't get sober that way. Um, you need the support of a community. Yeah, you really do. And so it's hard. So I try to kind of walk some sort of line around, around it. But to me, it feels like more helpful to not put out some sort of fake idea. Like I just put down alcohol. Now my life got rad. It's like, no, it's hard. And I needed a lot of support and I got it. And that supports out there for everybody. It always makes me think of Kurt Vonnegut. He, I remember reading cause I've never, um, I mean, I've been to one meeting as like a research thing. Cause I thought I was writing a character who was getting sober, Mm -hmm. but I was really blown away by, it was very moving for me, like just to sit there and listen to these people testify and talk and all of it. But like preceding that, I remember reading something he had written about how it's like the greatest church in America. It's, it's really true. People are like being really honest and yep. sharing like the most vulnerable parts of yep. themselves and they're there for each other. And there's the, you know, the mentoring and the, yeah. like a real sense of community yeah. and truth and vulnerability that even in like the most well-intentioned, I think places of worship or whatever you want to call them, that can sometimes be missing among amid yeah. all of the dogma. Yeah. You know, totally. Like everyone is truly on equal footing. Like there's truly no judgment. Like you can come in there having done whatever, said whatever. It was really healing for me in a lot of ways. Cause I had a lot of problems with dudes and then, and, and all of a sudden going into these rooms, there's all these men who are like super vulnerable and crying and like genuinely trying to become better people. And it was so touching. It really, I really had to drop. You're like, they're not all assholes. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe they are, but look at these guys are trying not to be right. Right. <laughs> they're resisting these their are asshole the reformed assholes. Yeah. So like, no, it was, it was really, it was a really cool situation. I really appreciated how, um, as somebody who had walled themselves off and been like, I really only want to hang out with other queer people who think only like me because outside that world, it feels really threatening and scary to suddenly have to be in this other place and and feel like come to the realization that this other thing, part of me, the part that's an alcoholic is actually so much more, um, important and meaningful. If I was going to like figure out like what part of my personality you know, is the most meaningful. It's like, it kind of trumped the fact that I was queer, you know, and, and to have this in common with this big mishmash of people right. was so humanizing and I, I really needed it. It was like, really cool. It's like a deep sense of connection with yeah. just people, with people. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, so much of like being an addict or an alcoholic, it's just like a, it's like a caricature of the human condition. It's like most people have some sort of thing, sure. you know, or multiple things. And I often, feel bad that their thing isn't alcoholism because there is this sort of like great program right here that you can kind of get your head on straight about it. But I just feel like it's so much just like the human condition. So when do you think, cause I, I wrestle with this sometimes. I think like I have this ideal in my head that like, I'll, I'll take nothing. I'll drink nothing. I'll smoke nothing. I will live completely sober and that's all I need. And yet the truth is that I have like a couple glasses of wine 
pretty much every night. Uh huh. That's it. Yeah. I never like finish a bottle. I've never, you know, like I don't wake up like face down on the carpet or, you know, I'm not feeling like there's no consequences. There's no negative consequences. Right. But I'm also like, why do I need that? You know, know, man. Where did, what, how does one, how does one parse that? Like in the, the, uh, you know, the realm of getting sober or being around people who are in recovery. Like, is there a rule for when, you know, like, is it like, oh shit, like relationships of mine are starting to suffer or. Yeah. I mean, I think people have, I mean, the, I think the idea is about consequences, you know, what are the, what are the consequences of your, of your drinking and that people who have problems, real problems with drinking, it's like, you will continue to drink in spite of the consequences. You'll find a way to excuse the consequences, explain away the consequences. Okay. Somehow the drinking will not ever be responsible. And I don't know how you kind of suddenly wake up to that kind of denial. It's really kind of, I mean, people talk about getting sober being kind of a miracle and it is because you, you're just sort of programmed to be in denial about the consequences. But I guess if, I guess if you look honestly at your life and you're just like, no, my relationships are fine. I'm physically healthy. Like I, I'm not feeling guilty or weird or sick or you I'm know. feeling guilty and weird though. But Cause like, it's like, I'm holding myself up to like, I think like this really like high, like Buddhist ideal of just like <laughs> self care not needing to numb oneself against one's suffering in any way, like to confront right. it with courage as yeah. opposed to be like, but then again, I'm thinking to myself, like, it's one thing to do that when you're living like out in the woods or in some sort of like really controlled environment where you're not necessarily inundated, but to live in the, the middle of a city, to have a family, to feel all these pressures, like Jesus Christ. Listen, if I could have two glasses of wine at night, I would do it. <laughs> like if my two glasses of wine didn't lead to like calling uh, pink dot, a for, blood, a blood know, orange margarita. <laughs> if I could just have a simple blood orange margarita <laughs> with dinner, you know, yeah. um, then I would do it. I think it's really normal. I think it's something that humans have always been drawn towards I me. Mean, life is really stressful. I, I frequently have moments where I wish I could have a drink, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't think there's anything that mysterious about it. Like I don't, you have I'm a certainly... replacement behavior. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, cause you sometimes with, with people who struggle with addiction, it's like, yeah. I, cause I mean, I used to smoke and it's like, you give up smoking and you get into exercise. Yes. The two things are not compatible right. and they both have a stress relieving. They element. do. They do. Well, I definitely think that I am somebody who has like dopamine issues in my brain and who knows if I was born like that, if I sort of screwed up my chemistry through doing so much drugs and drinking. But, um, I definitely found that when I didn't have alcohol, there were like other things that could get my dopamine. Like I would get high off of them, whether or not I wasn't necessarily looking to get high off of sex or people or shopping or all that stuff, but you do. And it was wild. I mean, I definitely got myself in some trouble, like with, you know, romance and stuff like that and making weird choices and, and, um, had to kind of get some clarity around that. And, and honestly, I just take medicine now. Like I take Celexa and it's like my brain is just getting the normal amount of dopamine a person gets. So I'm not kind of like "Ah." out of balance. Yeah. And just feeling kind of like weird and anxious all the time. And then it's like, I have sex with someone. I'm like, well, now I feel great. I'll just have sex with that person all the time, even though they're really wrong for me. And there's a million red flags and I shouldn't be you know, anywhere near them or, you and know, it's an Uber driver. And like, <laughs> <laughs> Totes. Um, um, so, so let, yeah, so I don't know that, but that's just my story. Okay. Well, let me, let me, let me ask you about it creatively. Cause mm-hmm. I sometimes have, uh, I have like many friends who have gotten sober, uh, many friends, uh, you know, who haven't, mm-hmm. um, but you know, we all do as adults. I think the yeah. more you're around, especially if you're a creative person, I it, think. Yeah, exactly. And so with respect to creativity, because I've noticed this sometimes like a person will get sober And that's great. And they're much healthier and they're much happier. And they then wind up channeling a lot of the, 
I don't want to say addictive, but like there's kind of like a compulsion and mm-hmm. you know, there's a compulsiveness yeah. to people who struggle with addiction. Oh, totally. Yeah. And yeah. it gets channeled into creative work in a way that allows them to be really productive. And this sounds kind of silly, but like I can find myself sort of envious, like, <laughs> cause they can go, they can go to work, you know, yeah. and they get that fix there and, yeah. and they always have the energy for it. It's like the, a redirection of that energy. It's really true. I mean, I think that's, I, I've seen that be true in my own life. Like I definitely entered into a really hardcore workaholism period, right? When I got sober and, and lived like that for a while, but it was like complicated because I was also getting a nonprofit off the ground. And when you're sort of like an independent low income artist with no safety net, you kind of have to hustle all the time anyway. So it was hard to know like what was what, but there was definitely a compulsive quality to it. Yeah. I mean, when you get sober, you're still an addict, you know, it's like, you don't, you just, you just took your drugs away, but you still have that same, you know, kind of compulsive personality. And I think that like through, there's like a million different kind of practices like spiritual or self care or whatever that can help you get to understand that about yourself. And then through that, I think you can play with it a little bit. Do you do that but, stuff? Are you like into spiritual stuff? Yeah, I'm into everything. Crystals? Totally. Yeah. I love crystals, okay. especially since coming to um, LA for some reason, I'm <laughs> so down with crystals. And yeah. like, I've been witchy since I was a teenager and I've never been particularly into crystals, except I've always really loved amethyst. It's my birthstone. Okay. But yeah, I'm like way into crystals right now. Just like as the energy or just like as a talisman. It's a talisman. I think they're beautiful. They're really, they like inspire something in me. They like set the stage for me to enter into a, a moment in my mind where I'm like, okay, I'm going to think about these things right now. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to do a tarot reading. I'm going to do a spell. And like, these are my little accoutrements. And, you know, I might just kind of be using these things to sort of like trick a part of my mind, whatever open, works. but it's I'm into it. You know, yeah. it's just kind of like, I don't know, lighting a candle to get you in the mood. You know what right, I mean? Right. It's like kind of like that. It's like just putting, setting a stage for, for you to focus on, like, you know, use a different part of your brain focus away from your daily insanity and yeah. do something else. That makes sense to me. Yeah. You religious? I mean, you're spiritual, but I'm not s- religious. Yeah. That yeah. Kind of thing? I'm like a, I'm like a redneck, right? Isn't that the joke? It's like rednecks are spiritual. No, I don't or, know that. Joke. Oh God. <laughs> it's in this really great poem by Bucky sinister. Um, so I'm losing it, but anyway, yes, I'm very spiritual. I wouldn't say I'm religious per se, Okay, but yeah, you weren't raised that way either. No, I was. I went to Catholic school for nine years. Oh. Yeah. Until I finally got kicked out. Okay. Yeah. Ah, perfect. <laughs> totally. <laughs> That's like a badge of honor. I know like, it is. I'm it's, very proud of it. <laughs> I always feel like this whenever I'm reading like, especially celebrity journalism that there's like a, it's like a trope. It's like, I got kicked out of, I got kicked out of private schools is, is like a huge one. It's like, Whoa, like that for me, it's like, it's like you see that repeated itself or it's like, I got kicked out of school or I was in trouble a lot. Uh-huh. I never really took to school. Uh-huh. Like, I feel like I see that over and over and over again. I always like and celebrities me- and just so you can or- watch your kids and you're like, Oh, you're either going to be an alcoholic or a celebrity <laughs> or both you just know. in the arts. And I feel like uh-huh. there's, I, I fetishize it a little bit and feel envious like <laughs> that I, you didn't get kicked out of school. I wasn't in trouble school. enough. Yeah. Oh man. Like I think it, I think it reflects poorly on my intellect. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Maybe you just, I mean, if I was in a better situation, I, I probably like, I wanted to go to a, a, a cool supportive school, you know, but I just didn't have that. I was like, Catholic, Catholic are, school. They're supposed to be good though, right? No, they're terrible. Who told awful. you that? Yeah, they're awful. They're run by I was nuns. raised Catholic, but I never went to Catholic school. Oh really? No. You're so lucky. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're stuck in those uniforms, which is hell. Like once you hit the age when you start getting into music and subculture and stuff. And then you're being taught by nuns who are like weird people. Like nuns just are weird. Bride, like bride of Christ. Yeah. Bride of Christ. Like 
took their vows. They're like, you know, completely subservient in this really woman hating religion. I mean, like, you know, obviously there's like some radical nuns out there who like have their own jam going on. They're trying to do cool stuff and I respect them. But like the nuns that taught me were just really weird and bitter and like not happy people. Yeah. And then, yeah. And they just want to squash you. They just want to like squash it down. You know, I had this, like the principal in my grade school, like by the time I was in eighth grade, she was coming to my class every morning to get me. Cause I would have like eyeliner on and she would like take me in the bathroom and like stand there while I like wash the eyeliner off my face. And then we would just do this every day. Cause we were having this power struggle and I would just wear my eyeliner to school and she would just make me wash it off. And they rewrote the handbook after I left this school. I really like you. This is awesome. <laughs> Thanks. This is very endearing to me though. You know, yeah, that, that you had like, that, that chutzpah as a child, you know, yeah, I knew they were dumb. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm really glad that I had the support of like MTV and things like that came up and I could really see clearly there was another way to live and other people lived that way. And they were, they found their own success in it. And I knew like, that's what I want to be. That's what I'm aiming for. Power like, of television. Yeah. Power it, of it, television. You know, as much as people, myself and Included, like to sometimes badmouth, you know, screen time or whatever, mm-hmm. and like just getting sucked into it, and you know, all the common arguments about yeah, how yeah. television can be deadening. The truth is that, especially for people who are in situations of limited opportunity or whatever, like it can show you uh, other modes of being. Absolutely, you know, and it's yeah. and, and it's fairly democratic in terms of its availability. Like most neighborhoods or homes or households, even those on the very low end of the economic scale have a TV. Yeah. We always had a TV, man. You can be sure of that. You, you know, know, it's like yeah. no books, but we yeah. got a TV. We, we had Stephen King books and we had a TV yeah. and yeah, totally. Oh my God. Especially in the eighties when there was no internet, you know, there was like th- this great show on, um, USA network on Friday and Saturday nights. And it started at midnight and it would go till six in the morning and it was called night flight. Yeah. I remember that. Right. Yeah. Night, it was, it was like a portal into like punk and new wave and like, you know, midnight movies, like weird, like cult classic movies, like showing reefer madness, ironically, and Gary Newman videos. And they showed this film called Times square, which like totally changed my life. And it's this amazing film about this girl who's very privileged and her dad's running for mayor of Times Square of, of New York on a platform to clean up Times Square. And this is in the late seventies when it's just like just a den of iniquity. Yeah, exactly. And she sees how, what a hypocrite he is. And she starts having this, like starts kind of speaking out about it. And he puts her into a psychiatric hospital to get, this is what's going to happen to Ivanka Trump, by the way. Oh God, that's (laughs) the best thing that could happen to her. Really? That would be amazing. God. Um, and then there's a street kid who's like actually super butch and it was a queer story, but they cut all of the lesbian kisses out of it and stuff like that. But it's still very clearly a butch there. romance dynamic. Yeah. This like amazingly hot little borderline personality disorder musician, butch who is also in the psych ward for like, you know, banging up a car, putting her guitar through a car or something. And she convinces her, she convinces the good girl by like, playing her busted boombox with like, I want to be sedated outside her door and gets her to run away with, with her. Sort and, of like John Cusack and say anything, right? Yeah, Before that though. But, but it, yes, yeah, yeah, totally. It was before it was before say anything and it's just this great. And then they go live and they squat and they do crime and <laughs> it's just the best movie. And, and Tim Curry's in it. Tim Curry's a sort of sleazy late night DJ who like supports them and helps them become sort of this movement called sleaze sister where it inspires all these other girls to like wear trash bags and put black over their eyes and throw TVs off of roofs. And it's had a big impact on you. Yeah, it really has. Isn't that interesting though? Like one late night movie, one yep. book, one thing can really 
set a person on a course. Yeah. It was a touchstone. I'd never seen girls like that. I'd never seen it, but I knew there was this thing. I knew there was like New York city, there was punk, there were these things. Then to see this whole movie about it and the fact that it was girls and there weren't, it wasn't really a heterosexual love story in it. I mean, Tim Curry got kind of creepy and kind of came between them, but, um, it was, yeah, it was really, it's definitely a, a touchstone for me for sure. I love turning people onto it because it's just, it stands the test of time. It's a really good movie. Is it on Netflix? I bet it is. It's the whole film of it is on YouTube though. Who wants to watch it like that? But, um, it's probably on Netflix. I have the DVD. You do? Yeah. (laughs) VHS. (laughs) Like a true Gen X or shit. (laughs) Totally. So, uh, quickly, what do you think is going to happen in the election? Like we're now a week out and, uh, I'm, it's like working my last nerve. I mean, it's like, we thought we were fine. And then this fucking email thing happens again. And like, you know, to quote Tyra Banks, like who cares about the emails? Nobody cares about the emails. It's like, when you just think of like how many, real crimes happen in the world and what terrible things. And even like Donald Trump being like, you know, somebody who's like sexually assaulted people. And then everyone's freaking out about like, I just don't care if Hillary Clinton sent an email on the wrong server. And like, maybe I should, but I just don't. Like if she, if she were like actively trading United States government information with like a foreign government that is not, um, align with our interests or something like that. You <laughs> right. know what I'm saying? If she were like doing something devious, like here's the secret then you're codes. Like, that pro- person probably shouldn't be our president. Yeah. But <laughs> it seems like she just wanted to, um, not have her email scrutinized and made a dumb mistake. And yeah. now they're being like super scrutinized. Totally. It's like that paranoia that she has of like wanting everything to be private and, or not like wanting to avoid like being, um, you know, pilloried and hyper scrutinized and yeah. it wound up backfiring. Mm-hmm, totally. And now here we are. And, and I just think the people who are getting so upset about that, I'm like, there are so many worse crimes in the world that like you are turning a blind eye to like, really, this is your cause. Like it's so fake to me. It's yeah. It's, but, it's like a theater. There's a theatrical element to political outrage, especially in an election season. Yeah. And that especially everyone's kind of performing their outrage to try to influence results. Mm-hmm. I can fall into that. Yeah. Where it's like Donald Trump said this. And then like, here's the, here's the truth. And some of the things he says, by the way, are genuinely offensive to me. But in the past, I've heard him interviewed. Like, I've heard those Howard Stern interviews. Uh huh. And, like, it's outrageous, but, like, I've been like, that's sort of funny. Uh huh. You know, and then I hear it now in the context of election season, and I'm like, he's a monster. <laughs> well, I mean, he's certainly not somebody you would want for president. No, no. You know what I mean? Like, under any circumstances, yeah. I would imagine. It's a different context. It's a totally different context. I mean,. Oh man. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I was, I was, I was like pretty happy until that, until the the second stupid round of emails. I can't imagine that he would get elected president, but obviously like unimaginable things happen on the, in this world all the time. So mm. I'm, I'm not being naive about it. Go I just vote. can't. Oh yeah. I got my, my little ballot at home. I'm going to go do it tonight well, and after people, trick or treating and people who like, it's also these people who are swinging, like who are, who are, who's undecided, who's persuaded by this. Who How doesn't you... know if they're a Hillary person or a Trump person. I mean, that's insane to me. It's crazy. And the, it, yeah. And it's, uh, and it's also like this false equivalence, you know, where like they're equally bad and no, he is an outrageously unacceptable candidate, dangerously unacceptable. Yeah. She is a compromise candidate. Yeah, t- exactly. I was really into Bernie Sanders. Like I had the Bernie yeah. Sanders sign on my lawn. And then when that fell apart, I just drew an X through it and I wrote Hillary. Yeah. Well, no, and I, <laughs> on my I, uh, Bernie Sanders sign. I had a thought the other night um, where I was sitting down, I was thinking about Bernie and like, it actually gets me like choked up. Cause he was close. Yeah. Not as close as I think some people think like, Bur- like Bur- uh, Barack Obama and Hillary's race was way closer. 
Oh. The primary race, like percentage, you know, like in yeah. terms of the percentage was actually a m- much narrower victory, oh. but Hillary, you know, she beat Bernie, but I feel like if he had started like six months earlier or, you know what I'm saying? Like if he had had a little bit more time yeah. to like work that candidacy, like right now, I feel like he would be 20 points ahead. Jeez, maybe, I'm, maybe, right. I'm, maybe I'm like totally pie in the sky. Cause I, you know, he never really had a negative ad air against him. Yeah. He, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't exposed the way that she's been exposed for 30 years. Totally. I just feel like he has a moral clarity that is unique in politics and was a very like surprisingly effective candidate. Like yeah. he, 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 when he spoke, man, it registered with me yeah. in a deep way. I felt like he was being real. There's yeah. an authenticity to him. I, absolutely. Know? I agree. Yeah. I had a moment before he lost the primary where I just was like, realize it was probably going to happen. And I just felt so bad. Like I was shocked at how invested I'd become. Although I don't know why, cause this happens to me all the time. Like I'll get really invested in some unlikely candidate. And well, then I also feel bad because he's what? 76 years old. How old is he? I don't know. He's older, but like, yeah, it sort of seemed like that was his shot. And I yeah. think, and I think he knows that it was a u- unique moment in history and that he came really close and yeah. that was his chance to be president and to do something major mm-hmm. and he still has done something major. Oh yeah. He's has a great legacy. But like he's... I think there's a wistfulness. I think cause you know, he, he tried hard for it and he came up a little bit short, but, um, that's part of what my sadness is, is that like if he was, f- you know, 48 years old or something, I'd be like, he's coming back. Oh yeah, totally. But... Like he's going to watch us ruin everything. <laughs> he's going to come back and be like, here I am to clean up your mess. Yeah. 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 So... Oh, Bernie, we hardly knew ye. We'll see what happens. What do you, what do you got going on next? I mean, you're, you're, um, promoting your book. I'm promoting obviously. black wave. I'm going up to the Pacific Northwest and doing some stuff. Um, I have the third and final book in my mermaid young adult fantasy trilogy coming out. Okay. Um, called castle on the river Vistula, where I got really into like Polish, World War II politics, like the, the Warsaw resistance and stuff like that, which I'm super interested in. And I have a tarot book coming out okay. in June. You into the tarot? I'm really into tarot. I've been reading tarot cards since I was 15. So well, yeah, you could say so I'm you, only 18 now. So you could I like, really... I don't even know anything about this. You you could deal me out some tarot cards and tell me stuff. I about... could deal you out some tarot <laughs> cards and like get some sort of vibe on like where you're at right now, what your concerns are, what's happening for you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I have so enjoyed this. Me too. This I, is great. Thanks for having me over. Yeah. And uh, I wish you luck on uh, all that you have going on. Thank you. Same to you. Good luck with that big book. All right, guys, there you go. That is Michelle T. There she is. Her new novel is called Black Wave. It's available now from Feminist Press. You can find Michelle online at michellet.com. She's on Facebook. She's on Twitter. Her handle at uh, Twitter is at T Michelle. T-E-A Michelle. Two L's, I believe. I think I got that right. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. Just go to your favorite app store, search for Other PPL with Brad Listy. You'll find the app. It's free. It's the best way to listen. The most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. Uh, and then, best of all, if you want to get at the Deep Archives, if you want access to all of the episodes available wherever you go at your fingertips, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's as cheap as $0.75 cents a month. $0.75 cents a month gets you access to everything, and uh, it's also a great way to support the show. So do that. If you were so inclined, I would appreciate it. Um, I'm trying to think. What was I going to say? I'll probably dress up next year. I think I'm going to have to do that. 
to rectify this situation. I suck it up. It's got to get organized. Got to put in a. Uh, got to put in a, uh, an alert in my calendar on like September first. Start thinking about what to be. Already getting stressed about it. Remember uh, the four-hour work week? Remember that? You guys ever read that? It's all about how you get a virtual assistant in like Bangladesh who just handled all that stuff for you. Like you just you hire somebody basically in a third-world country to be your virtual assistant, and you do it like ideally with somebody who's in a time zone that's like twelve hours different from you. Like they're way ahead of you, so like you can put in all these requests, and then you like go to bed, and you wake up, and all this shit is done. But uh, that was what this book was advocating for. It's making me think maybe I should hire a virtual assistant to uh, manage my Halloween situation next year. Please remember that uh, Horace Greeley died insane and that Nathaniel West once applied for a Guggenheim Fellowship with recommendations from F. Scott Fitzgerald, Edmund Wilson, and Malcolm Cowley and was rejected. That's it for now. Thanks to... Michelle T, one more time for being uh, such a great guest. Go get her novel. It's called Black Wave, available from Feminist Press. Uh, did I say Feminist Pressed? You know what I mean, press. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. It's late. My brain is going. Can you, can you detect it? Can you feel it? I really do. I, there, at a certain level of fatigue, I do start to feel like a disconnect happening between my brain and my mouth. That's what you're witnessing here now, in this moment. I keep worrying that I'm going to start... Uh, that I think this whole uh, entire episode, I've been worried that I was going to refer to Michelle's novel as Black Mirror. That TV show that I've never seen that everyone tells me I need to see. It's Black Wave. Michelle T's novel is called Black Wave. And I really do believe she should uh, think long and hard about writing a Facts of Life reboot. That's the way good ideas are born. Just like that. Just like quick in the moment in a conversation you have an epiphany like that. Joe and Blair. That's hot. Make that happen, Michelle. <laughs> Do it for HBO or Showtime, though. I don't want any of this Facts of Life on network. Let's go all out. Let's get subversive. All right, guys. Uh, I'm wrapping it up. I'm going to bed. I'm going to try to get up in the morning. Be a writer. <laughs>